0: News, 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 new, new, news, New York City.
1: The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. This is Alex Brooklyn reporting to you from Budapest. Harry and Chrissy are out this week also gallivanting about the planet. So, as a special treat, we're introducing a brand new podcast hosted by a few of our favorite former guests on the show. It's about the growing reach of surveillance in the city, aptly named Surveillance in the City. And at the helm are Albert Fox Khan, Liz O'Sullivan, and Ollie Winston. I helped produce the pilot. Adam Kamara is going to do a little mixing for us, and I really like how it turned out. And I think you will, too. So please, enjoy.
2: Welcome to this podcast, which is coming together in real time, a <laughs> uh, name to be inserted here surveillance Surveillance
1: in in the city city. it's gonna be a good one though
2: no uh my name is albert Kahn. i'm the executive director of stop the surveillance technology oversight project
1: i'm liz o'sullivan i am also part of stop and other things
0: i'm ali winston i'm an independent journalist i've been i normally cover cover criminal justice but i also have a sideline in surveillance that has taken me back to like 2006 and it's really unhealthy but (laughs) (laughs) that's why i'm
2: here
1: I think it's
2: healthy obsession. Yeah, we kind of all are sharing the same obsession, which is why we decided to share a bit of it with you. And the idea behind this podcast is that we come together for you know an hour or so once a week to tell you about the new horrifying dystopian technologies that are infiltrating our city, impacting your lives, terrifying your children, and just creeping out everyone you know. And making some people a lot of money.
1: Yeah, but hopefully we're gonna scare the crap out of you. And you'll wanna join the tinfoil hat club with us.
2: <laughs> uh tinfoil hats are extra charge. Um we're all
1: wearing them right now. Yeah, before the watchman made them cool. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, before they went mainstream. And so, you know, why don't we give a bit of background on sort of the work that we each do uh day to day? So Ali, do you wanna start? Sure.
0: Um I guess it was around 2006 2007 when the cities when new york city decided to install these linked surveillance cameras mm. around um what was it? it was lower manhattan at first mm-hmm. right it was the battery and all that oh
2: yeah
0: uh lower manhattan security initiative the ring of steel um that's when i really started paying attention to large-scale surveillance networks that you know before before you'd read about them and stuff like bruce sterling or um, jack womack or other books like that um you know, off-the-wall science fiction, but it really started to come together at, in like five, six, seven years after nine eleven, mm. Um And I I watched that stuff as kind of independent um, developments from the other reporting I did on criminal justice in Jersey, in the city, when I moved out to California. But over time, um, everything just kind of collided and came together. And I think it was really around, um, I want to say it was around 2010, 2011, Um, During this really intense period of protest in the Bay Area, uh, when the Oscar Grant movement was at its peak, um, when there were a lot of education protests, when Occupy kicked off and Occupy Oakland um, really kind of Mm. came up to like national prominence right here with New York, with Occupy Wall Street, um, that started to pay attention a little bit more to how Police engaged in their surveillance practices and really like drilled down on demonstrators in ways that were not unfamiliar to anybody who grew up in New York um, during Giuliani time or doing Bloomberg's terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, My work has taken me pretty much to every single corner of law enforcement and surveillance technology and it's been a very
2: strange and very weird journey. And one of the exciting things about having you as part of this conversation is that you've touched on so many of these different technologies. They've touched me. (laughs) <laughs> oh God! <laughs> they've touched me. <laughs> I, they, I, don't, I don't seek these things out. They're just <laughs> My there. Goodness. Trust me, they've touched all of us. Uh, and but we're gonna hopefully have a chance to hit on each and every one of those in the coming weeks as we look at the different proposals that are getting rolled out across New York City, and mm-hmm. New York State, and other parts of the country. Because you know what may have been uh, a novelty in the Bay Area in two thousand and eight could be you know. Something we're seeing on every street corner, oh, you know, around the corner, and it's been
1: there for uh, years. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, yeah. ShotSpotter is a great example of
0: that—the gunshot yeah. detection technology that was slowly rolled out in the in California cities in the mid two thousands, and now you have them, you know, deployed throughout New York City, yeah. Boston, Philly, overseas, and. It, it
2: works. Doesn't work. I they don't sure know. They tend to
1: spread. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they just spread.
2: So, Liz, what about you? What What is your uh, sort of path to surveillance? Oh God, work? I don't know.
1: I guess I was working. I was just a regular tech worker for ten years in New York, and then uh, I was working for this AI company. Uh, they had this cool idea to build facial recognition technology, and then um, you know, I was like, oh, I got. I guess it was over a period of several months, I figured out that their intent was, you know, a bit more law enforcement-y than I had originally known. Uh, They promised us they would never work with the military. Turns out they were going to work with the military. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I guess that's, you know, I quit very publicly, became, I guess, a whistleblower, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm
2: pretty sure the New York Times called you exactly that. (laughs)
1: Not explicitly yet, Um, but I'm I'm stepping into the term. I'm I'm owning it. Um, But that's when I met Albert and, you know, all the work that he's been doing to try to help stop this encroachment of the way that police forces are aggressively adopting new technologies that infringe on our civil liberties and trample on all of our constitutional rights. I mean, I've always been a little bit of a, a civil liberties crazy, but meeting Albert really just solidified that. And so I joined the cause first a technologist and now a uh, technology director where i just build things and talk about things that might actually hurt our freedoms
2: yeah, I mean, those are the three words that define me: civil liberties, crazy. It's just like <laughs> this is true. <laughs> distills me to my core. This is
1: entirely true.
2: No, I, I mean, I come to all of this from the lawyer side of things, so much more boring, lots more paperwork, lots more litigation. But, but we
1: get to sue people, though. Yeah, yeah, that's way fun. We sue people. That's all way the time. fun. I wish I
2: could sue people. I, I will say, every time I sue the NYPD, my heart grows one size bigger. <laughs> I think it may become a medical condition at some point. But, like, for now, it's, like, been a, a positive experience. But, yeah, so I, I my backstory is um, uh went to law school, went to a giant corporate firm, sold my soul – well, leased my soul to giant companies Leasing. for a while. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: Temporarily. Yeah, then
2: decided <laughs> that was not for me, uh, left. And at first, I uh, started working at a Muslim civil rights group in 2016, did not think that was going to – become the sort of national issue that it was. But oh, then right. life got pretty interesting. I uh, started doing a lot of work around the Muslim ban, hate crimes, stuff like that, but kept working on anti-Muslim surveillance around New York. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what led me to see the need to have an organization focused on fighting surveillance uh, and just fighting surveillance uh, here in New York. And uh, so I founded Stop. Uh, Back in 2019, and uh, that's how I met Liz and got to work with Ali on a few stories and uh, got to convince more and more New Yorkers that they need to start wearing those tinfoil hats. (laughs) Um, It it really is interesting that you got involved in that sort of work
0: after the mosque raking stories Mm -hmm. broke out and after the Reza suit was filed, and that issue was supposedly dealt with Mm -hmm. by the Bloomberg administration and the de Blasio administration. and he, he, over the years, you've mentioned that that just—you've kind of hinted that that's not the case. One day.
2: <laughs> well, this will be a preview of a standalone yeah. episode. Oh, We've got no. like when oh, we yeah, go yes. when we go into what sounds—it sounds like paint drying when you talk about a federal consent decree. But it's I'm not. telling you, like <laughs> dead, when though. you get into the details of how these limits on NYPD spying are actually enforced, It it's unbelievable. It's just like you can drive a truck through these uh, loopholes. That's actually a good transition to our first segment because that um, consent decree, uh, Hanshru.
0: Yeah, the Hanshu agreement.
2: It originally came about because of the way the NYPD was spying – on protesters during the anti-war movement during vietnam barbara she was the plaintiff right yeah she's been great so this is one person who was a litigant on this back in 1974 i think still is the plaintiff six. on the case <laughs> has not like walked away from it same judge same like uh attorneys like the people on this case are imbued in amber but like When you look at that case, it's a reminder that the sort of, you know, police surveillance issues we're talking about, they didn't start, you know, in the digital age. They didn't start, you know, post 9-11. It Mm -hmm. goes back to the anti-war movement and definitely goes back to the civil rights movement. So since we're recording on, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I thought why not take a second to talk about how you see surveillance impacting civil rights uh, and advocacy so let me put it this way could we have had a successful civil rights movement by dr king with the sort of surveillance tools we have today
1: oh, God. you know i don't know i feel like yeah absolutely we would have had to there would have been something but i will say you know i'm new to being an activist i've been doing this less than a year and I am aware when I walk into houses that have Alexa in them. Oh, it's the
0: worst experience on earth. It's mm. awful.
1: And, you know, to some degree, I'm kind of thinking maybe I should just ask them to turn it off. Or I'm definitely aware of what I'm saying in the room because, you know, like you said, Albert, people – the police do monitor activists. And, you know, my name is all over the press sometimes. And so they know who I am. They know that I don't like Amazon and that I'm, you know, active against these causes. So I don't really want my conversations to live in their databases. I feel like that fear is what we're really worried about, that chilling of speech, making people afraid to speak up or to speak up in public. If there are microphones and cameras everywhere, then everywhere is public.
0: Do people tell you if they have an Alexa, or do they just kind of? Is there like a disclosure? Is there a sign up when you walk <laughs> no. in the door? I haven't had this experience yet. My friends aren't, thankfully, into this sort of you know this sort of hell world. Some but.
1: of mine are, and I have to ask. I sometimes I'll see a little mon- men- menacing light, and I see it, and I'm like, Oh, is that an Alexa? Kill me, I need man. you to turn that off, actually. <laughs> Please. Kill me.
0: They're giving them away for free now to New York City residents. <laughs> oh yeah, free. it's free. Your life is going to be used to just generate data and money
2: for us. Because everything be that's faucet. free is
1: actually free everything yeah, in where's check where's that's my free cut? is totally free
2: but where's my cut <laughs> all right so let's agree Friends, don't let Amazon spy on their friends. All right, if you're gonna have friends <laughs> or over,
1: or just don't have one.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, it's just common courtesy, people. You know, you just—we're not going to get their ad sponsorship. Yeah, no, no. Uh, Jeff Bezos, if you would like, for some reason, the experience of a bunch of people making fun of you for an extended period of time, we are looking for underwriters. Uh, but no, but so, but it's serious. Like when you think about how chilling it is to know that. Your activities are being recorded. You know, if that's tracking you to your friend's house, that has huge implications. But if it's tracking you to a protest, like what I always wonder is, will people take the same sorts of risks to challenge the government and to challenge authority when they know that it's so easy for, you know, one photograph to be run through facial recognition and to identify everyone who is there? And to prosecute everyone who is in the vicinity of a broken window at a a, a protest.
0: Well, yeah, the J-20 case is an absolutely mind-boggling one. I think that – you know I don't think surveillance is a new feature or that sort of law enforcement interest in political activism is a new feature. It's constant throughout Mm -hmm. um, human history and American history certainly so. If – you look back at like well ne- <laughs> let's go further back let's look at like the um the worker you know the, the labor movements the industrial industrial action um the left wing organizing that took place in this country among immigrant communities in the late 19th and 20th century um or among you know american like anglos out in colorado mm-hmm. when they were organizing the mines out there you know pan- Law enforcement would send people in to these camps. They'd send spies in. The Pengertons, the private security firms Uh of the day, would send people in. You know, the anarchist movement in the early 20th century was heavily infiltrated. So were the communist movements. There was an incredible effort to keep tabs on these people and these movements. But the technological sophistication has really changed. Yeah. That being said, there is one thing – how do I put this? Over the past 15 years, there's been a real interesting shift – you see more people, as time goes on and things get a little bit more extreme in this country, kind of shift towards activism in a way that wasn't the case in like 2003, 2004, 2005. I'm not oh, speaking yeah. for the people in the room, mm-hmm. but you know, when if you were young during those years, you can remember how a lot of people checked out and just did not engage in these issues. Yeah And that's not the case anymore, mm-hmm. despite the level of transpa- I guess transparency. That exists around their day to day lives and activities. Um, it's an interesting question. The matter, you know, would Dr. King be like held accountable for the actions of some of the people that are in his movement um, in the same way that a lot of you know civil rights leaders now are certainly shaped up to to be? Maybe I'm not sure. I mean, they the campaign that Hoover ran against him was pretty intense, though.
2: Yeah, it was I've- really dirty. Yeah. And and for those of you who don't know the history of it, you know, J. Edgar Hoover had a lengthy campaign of, you know, having people photographing Dr. King, tracking who was meeting with him. Wiretapping him. Wiretapping him illegally, uh, identifying that he was having an extramarital affair and trying to use that to get him to commit suicide. Just really terrifying and disgusting things that uh, I, I think. You know, showed the the lack of oversight on the FBI at the time, but
0: the depravity of the agency, perhaps. I mean, I think that that's a re- what he, they were doing was reprehensible.
2: But they had the resources to do that to one man, right? Right now, the technology makes it so much easier to do that to every single yeah. person that's true. who takes part in the movement. And you know, if maybe you know that sort of uh intimidation tactic isn't enough to dissuade someone who's giving their entire life to leading this cause but my fear is that it's enough to block the people who are willing to come to the protest, are willing to pitch in yeah. for a couple hours here and there, but aren't willing to commit their entire life to the movement.
1: Yeah, I completely agree, and and you're totally right. It's the scale that makes it scary. That you know, with with Martin Luther King, you he probably I don't know the exact situation, but probably he had to get a warrant to to wiretap them, right? There had to have been some degree of court oversight. I would assume. Please Not, tell me no. Uh,
0: a couple drops of Jay Edgar's blood on the paper would probably make it
1: good. <laughs> oh, good so,
2: <laughs> Put switching into lawyer mode. This predates the Supreme Court holding that required the extent the uh, current wiretap approval mechanism we have today. Uh, okay, but well s- we do
1: have one. Title three, T- yeah. Okay. yeah.
2: So title three of the Omnibus Crime Control Act of
1: 1964. <laughs> God, I love lawyers. I know, right? <laughs> it's Requires candy. a
2: so-called super warrant anytime you're gonna wiretap someone. It comes out of a Supreme Court case uh that postdates a lot of the uh sort of worse abuses that were directed. Uh, at king by hoover
1: yeah okay so so now we have these super warrants where if you want to wiretap someone you have to get this extremely specialized warrant and prove that it's worthwhile that there's a real and present danger but what we're seeing now is that these you know the, the conditions for these warrants are completely out of date where you can subpoena someone's alexa recordings whenever you say the word alexa anything you say after that anytime the device thinks you're saying alexa so anytime you use like the word like followed by a word that starts with s They can subpoena any recording that's just accidentally or, like, intentionally sampled from the air in your house. And that's a regular old warrant. It's just a regular subpoena. It's not even close to the same degree of, of like, demonstrating real harm.
0: Totally. And now you have these geofence warrants that are getting handed down by Google. Which are, if you want the definition of a, you know, dragnet, that is a digital dragnet. It is a digital dragnet of anybody who's basically within a certain area. It's worse than a cell tower ping. Because it's all this data that's maintained by one company and it's a tremendous amount
1: of it. Oh, yeah. Anybody who walks down a certain city block could be falsely accused of a crime. And just to take a step back, and ex- you know, for those
2: of you who haven't heard of uh, reverse search warrants or geo-offense warrants before, I will shamelessly plug an article I just wrote in Fast Company uh, about it's a request on right. the Upper East Side uh, after a um, – Uh, Attack by the Proud Boys back in 2018 where the district attorney's office basically came in and said, Google, Lyft, Uber, Snapchat, a bunch of other apps, we want you to tell us everyone who is in a certain area at a certain time and not just tell us who they are but hand over all the data you have on them. And it's a tool that's been used in some cases. Like in one case uh, Forbes wrote about the DEA getting records on more than I believe 10,000 phones from one request That's that incredible. Ig- that span you know tens of thousands of uh, square feet for you yeah. know a period of 90 days. And so basically, it's a way as a law enforcement officer to no longer say, "Hey, I need to identify the one person." I'm going to swoop in here and say, "Hand me information on everyone this whole neighborhood." Yeah. Cool.
0: Instead of going for the needle in the haystack, you take the haystack and you feed it into an algorithm,
1: mm-hmm. and, yeah, and like one, a wood chipper. <laughs> oh yes.
2: <laughs> exactly. And and one of the cases that, you know, we've written about a lot and and that a lot of people are concerned about is what happens if you have a political protest and suddenly one person breaks a window at that protest. And now you have as a law enforcement officer the excuse you need to go in and say, "Give me the name and uh, you know, ID of everyone in a block." Uh, distance from that broken window. Right. right. And,
1: and then use that to get like their entire search history and their Facebook messaging history and everything that's on their private profile, not even the stuff that's public.
2: And this is where we lose any sense of proportionality, where one low-level crime can become an excuse to take, you know, the really sensitive information of, you know, tens of thousands of people. And,
1: and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't even have to tell you that they're doing it, right, with third-party consent?
2: There's no notice. Right. So depending on the type of information, there may be notice after the fact. There may not be. It gets complicated. Not so, yeah, a- they don't
1: have to tell you. Don't <laughs> lo- put your lawyer fo- voice down.
2: So, like, it, there was just a scandal in Puerto Rico where they uh, took uh, the Facebook information for – I believe it was several hundred activists – uh, over a lengthy period of time. And there they did have to provide notice, but only after a delay. And so sometimes, depending on what they're getting, they may have to have a delay. Sometimes they don't have to tell you at all. Sometimes uh, they have to tell you right away. But
0: well, that's the, the way it works with no, a normal Title Three warrant. They serve you with notice of the wiretap after they keep extending. They extend, they extend, mm-hmm. they extend, they extend, they extend, basically to the point where they only let you know that you've been wiretapped after... You've been served with charges. That's the way the normal criminal wiretaps work.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it gets to be a tricky issue because you can see, you know, just play devil's advocate. You can see the law enforcement justification that if you have, you know. Do we have to? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you
0: do.
1: Fine. But come on.
2: All right. So let's say. Because that's to...
0: why these things are being put into play. They have their just they have their logic for how these tools can work and should work and can be
2: used. That would be right. great,
1: but I would like a little, little bit of proof. That, all that's right. all I'm asking for. Let's make it a
2: silly uh, example just to prove how silly
1: the logic okay. is. Okay, let's do all this. Right, so
2: you are a Ghostbuster and you want to go after the ghost of Al Capone. That's right. Like You don't want <laughs> yeah, to yeah, let him do. know that he's being investigated until you're ready to slap the handcuffs on him and send him to ghost jail. No, you <laughs> I mean, not, not
0: ghost jail. It's the, You put him in the trap. You all have right. to get Very a trap. correction. Now. You really haven't seen Ghostbusters fair. in a long time. Time. All right. Anyhow. On the
2: trap. <laughs> on the floor in the trap. You had that toy.
1: We all did. Don't we lie. All did. We all did.
2: We all did. broke very quickly. So you don't want to give him a heads up that he's going to be faced with charges. So you secretly wiretap him. You get to listen in on his calls until the moment you're ready to put him in the trap. Okay. And, and so, right. and, and in that case, it makes sense. The problem is you, there are a lot of cases where innocent people are being, you know, targeted for no reason other than political affiliations, racism, anti-Muslim prejudice, and they don't know that their data is being tracked until sometimes months or even years mm. after the uh, monitoring first starts. And, and so, it's really a tricky case because, you know, all of this only works if the judges do their job. Which isn't always the case. No, and judges are appointees too,
0: um, especially on the federal bench. Uh
1: uh-uh.
2: All right. So <laughs> taking a step back from Ghostbusters, Ghost Jail, uh, or Slash the Traps and all of this, where, where do you come out on this? Like short version, do you think that activism can be as effective in the age of mass surveillance? I think
0: it can be. It activism always hinges on how much people have to lose. I think Hong Kong is a perfect example of that. I think France is a perfect example of that. Those protests have not died down in France, despite the fact that the French police are using facial recognition in real time, probably not accurately, but they're using it in real time to ID people at these demonstrations by the hundreds, by the thousands in in direct violation of French law. That has not deterred people from coming out. Like it's not just the surveillance that does that, it's the direct violence they face too, and they face a tremendous amount of it, both there and certainly in Hong Kong. Um, but that being said, those conditions are you know, and you can argue about this, you can argue in the particulars about it, um, depending on what side you're on, but the people there feel like they have no other choice. So it's kind of an end case scenario. Um, that may not be the case with other smaller issues, and it does intimidate. There is an intimidation factor that exists.
2: Liz?
1: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the, when the stakes are super high, people are going to turn up. But my, my real fear is that um, you know, people will get used to it, that they'll get used to the surveillance. And you know, this generation of Hong Kong, uh, they grew up understanding that they were a certain degree of free And their kids may not have that same understanding, and they may be less willing to make that trade when it becomes evident that you know maybe you do have nothing to lose, but maybe they're able to – maybe the government is able to prove to you that the alternative is worse. And if they have 100 percent perfect surveillance, it doesn't exist, but that's the end game, 100 percent perfect surveillance, then there's nowhere to hide.
2: Yeah, I kind of – I agree with both of you. So I I think people are going to still show up for the things that matter, but I'm worried that it will make – Protest team and risk averse—that all sort of neuter the the parts of advocacy and activism that really shake society to its core, because people will suddenly become afraid of anything that can be used to charge them criminally, uh, that can be hung over their head.
0: Yeah, know? I mean, I guess Xinjiang is the
2: terminal case, right? <sighs> All right, so before we go down that dystopian rabbit hole, (laughs) let's go to the next segment for today, which is equally dystopian but far uh, closer at hand. Uh, And that's a lovely – a facial recognition company called Clearview. <laughs> uh, so Liz, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, the background of Clearview?
1: Yeah. So really big story broke this weekend. Um, Clearview AI, a company, very small company, um, maybe only one employee, um, backed by Peter Thiel and others, uh, was able to build a database of 3 billion For the photos. the record,
2: we love you, Peter Thiel. We Peter don't want to get sued. Don't sue us. I
1: love Peter Thiel. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Anyhow, tell us how his terrible company is horrible. It's
1: not his company. He's an investor and he's disavowed himself. If you're listening, don't sue us. Um, but no, but really, so they, they collected a 3 billion photos strong database of scraped all, right off the internet, social media, Instagram, all of the different things that you do and say among your friends – Maybe you were aware of that these certain images were public. Sometimes most people aren't because it was this weird little setting in like the, the nether regions of the Facebook privacy settings. I had mine on and I'm a tinfoil hat wearer so I didn't even realize that this was going to – anyway. Um, so this database – By the
2: way, Facebook nether region sounds very problematic. A term-
1: <laughs> Can we I- edit that out? Or-
2: no, keep it. No, keep <laughs> no. it. It's entirely accurate.
1: <laughs> ah. OK, fine.
0: <laughs> Perfect term. <laughs>
1: So yeah, so Peter Thiel funded this company and... Basically, they made Shazam for humans. So,
0: it, <laughs> that's a great way to is, put it. That's
1: exactly what it is.
0: Shazam for humans. You
1: walk up to anybody, you take a photo of them, or you know, you see some surveillance footage camera from a bodega or whatever, and you take that photo, you upload it to Clearview, and Clearview is going to show you like the whatever public posts you've made on Instagram or Facebook, and that's connected to your real name.
2: And, and for those of you not familiar with Shazam, it is a app that a lot of people use that can listen to a clip of a song and... And tell you the name of that song and give you a link uh, to the artist. So
1: Great product.
2: Uh, ju- please. So so they should find I've seen it fail. Oh, no. <laughs> and so this is similar. It takes one image of a human being and it pulls up the, that person's identity and links you to their social media web presence.
1: Yeah. So whether you want to or not, you are probably in this database. There's no way to get out of it. Um, you know, there's no recourse. There's GDPR in the EU, which might give you the right to be forgotten. But
2: before we go any further, Liz, could you explain for folks what is the GDPR?
1: Oh yeah, GDPR is General Data Protection Regulation. Yeah, the R one. Um, yeah, General Data Protection Regulation, sweeping, vast, and strict privacy regulation out of the EU. Um, you know, requires that. You take certain steps with security and privacy. If you're going to maintain a database, people have to have a way out of it. If you use AI, you have to be able to explain the decisions. Um, Really inspiring legislation and something that we're really trying to hopefully get started here in the U.S.
2: And if you're like most people, your main experience with it is the really frustrating large number of emails you get (laughs) uh, about people updating their privacy policies. But like – Beyond that annoyance, there is a lot going on in the back end that actually makes this uh, software uh, a lot more accountable to the people whose data is being used.
1: But for now, it's just out there. You're part of this database. We call it a perpetual lineup because it just means if somebody commits a crime and you look really similar to this person, then you could come up as a false positive if the police pull someone over. Maybe it's a murderer. Maybe it 's a terror suspect, and you could be put on trial for that person. Nobody knows yet or how severe or how strong this evidence will be in court, um, but it 's entirely possible that you would be falsely convicted, and especially if you 're a person of color or a woman of color, those error rates are a lot higher for you. So your risk of getting falsely accused and convicted of a crime based off of something you now have no control over is much higher than the rest of us white folk.
2: And, and just to clarify, we don't actually know the error rates for Clearview particularly because they haven't actually released that data. No. I'm oh, yeah. That way. They're
1: never going to. So
2: the, that uh, error rate data comes from an analysis at MIT uh, last year where it was uh, – you know revealed that the you know for some commercial products you could have 99% accuracy for you know a middle-aged white dude but if it's a woman of color especially a darker-skinned woman of color that suddenly the error rate for that exact same piece of software could be 30% 33%. And
0: facial recognition is a relatively new uh technology but you've seen this with other sorts of biometrics that fail. There was an Oregon lawyer charged with a He was charged, arrested and charged by the feds for his role in his alleged involvement in a terrorist plot in 2005 in Spain that was based off a fingerprint match that was entirely inaccurate.
2: What do you think is sort of stands out about a product like Clearview?
0: Well, I'm not sure that it does stand out a great Mm. deal from a lot of the other facial recognition companies and apps Mm. that have been put forward. There are a tremendous number of firms that do this. Um, realistically, they all have algorithms that work in a similar fashion that compare the spatial points on a face mm-hmm. um, and try and run those through a mathematical model to try and match them against similar images, the shading. I mean, it's it's machine vision. Um, and at the base of it, there are only a few engines, a few, server, few companies that have servers large enough to run this stuff. I mean, everybody's really borrowing space on AWS
2: mm-hmm. to do
0: this. Um, and the biggest players in the firm, uh, Meg V, um, what's the other one? Face plus plus and yeah. so on. Like there are only Sense a few. Nets yeah. Sense Nets, I mean, Sense Sense Nets, Nets, I all, so over the yeah. cop, well, Coplink's more like law enforcement's own version of this stuff that. Matches Microsoft, yeah, Microsoft as well. Microsoft and Microsoft and Amazon are basically the the two major players in Mm -hmm. terms of like server space and computing capacity, which Mm -hmm. is what it takes to run stuff out. And everybody else is kind of buy. They kind of like rent the algorithm in the server space. Is that an accurate way of phrasing it, Liz?
1: There's open source stuff out there. If you if you can buy your own server, you can run an open source library. There's one that we've been playing with for activism reasons Mm. called OpenFace, which Mm. works pretty well. I I mean, you need to power it with GPUs, but you can just lease those on, like you said, AWS. Right, precisely.
0: So (laughs) So
2: jargon alert. Uh, Uh So GPU.
1: Sorry, it's a graphics processing unit. It's just like a a computer processor that's really effective. It makes they, your
0: World of Warcraft is, pop, bro. That's
1: exactly right. <laughs> to
2: put it in the simplest terms possible, the
1: cloud. Yes, the
0: cloud. Uh. So I, I don't know. Back to my original point. I think that the the facial recognition as a whole is going to fall under the same sort of error that any other biometric does. It does, you know. Um, fingerprinting, voice printing, gait analysis. All these things that are supposedly supposedly make us unique. Dude, there are billions of humans in the world. Somewhere out there there's somebody who looks like you, who sounds like you, whose fingerprint matches your ridge. I mean, that's there are error rates in here and this drive towards perfection um I mean it's it's manic. Right?
2: It's so like it's, it's
1: bad when it works and it's bad when it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> but
2: I think the difference with facial recognition and, you know, this works for some biometric surveillance but not – but differentiates it from fingerprints. And, you know, with fingerprints, you're not seeing a huge racial uh, differential in the accuracy. You're not seeing it uh, have error rate differentials based off of gender or, uh, you know, other protected characteristics. But with facial recognition, we know the technology a lot of the times is getting it wrong more often for, you know, people of color and for – women of color in particular. So isn't that something that differentiates uh, facial recognition from fingerprints?
0: Yes, it is. And the fact that machines are being taught to see skin color and recognize certain people at higher rates and, than others because of the models that they're trained on, that just, does make forget. it different. They do forget. Yeah, but they, then you also have like, the, the, the thing about facial recognition is that the drive to perfection is really what pushes it. Right. To me, from my perspective, China's version, China's take to this is, oh, facial recognition is inaccurate on black people. Well, we're going to buy huge data sets or we're going to take huge data sets from the government of Uganda or Zambia. And we're going to train facial recognition algorithms to see black people. See, everybody's equal under the machine. Everybody's equal under this electronic gaze.
1: I think that's an important point, though, because, you know, we talk about this. These algorithms are racist and they, they see, you know, color. They have. They see color differently and they have large errors on the But that's the point. It won't be that way forever. Exactly. It's that way because some engineers, engineering team like forgot to include women of color in their training set, and so it doesn't see them, them correctly. But that won't be the way forever. They're gonna slowly increment up towards perfection. And when they get to perfection, that's when we really need to be scared.
2: And that's the thing that I think disturbs me most about Clearview, isn't that you know, we have evidence that you know, it discriminates more than any other facial recognition software. It's that they are more, grabbing more information. On each and every one of us. Yes. yes. And it's that data scraping where they're going and taking our you know, social media profiles, where they're taking you know, our Flickr photos, where they're taking all this data that leaks to the world without us really intending it to be used for this purpose. And they're weaponizing it against us.
0: You know what the analogy is? It's Palantir. Mm. Palantir does that. Does just that. It basically it's a deconfliction software. It's not anything special, but it just it sits like a spider on top of a web and pulls things from different strands into something that's digestible.
2: So deconfliction software.
0: Deconfliction software is law enforcement. Um, that's not actually deconfliction software. is Something completely different. Deconfliction software. I misspoke. Is software that where you flag a case if somebody else runs the name. You're notified and then you're notified if you mark that case as your own. The other cop calls you up and is like, what's going on with this case? It's not deconfliction software. It's breaking down stovepipes. It's breaking down stovepipes of siloed information that sit independent from each other and basically have different bits of information and logic that can seem completely unrelated at first. But this program – what? Palantir was so right. good at doing is pulling all that information together in a very digestible format and showing the connections between it. It's right. like, a, it's like um, a Mark Lombardi painting. Like, like that your was, social media, like yes. your
1: bank account transactions, like anytime your, your car is driven number, by a license plate reader. With. Yeah, what rooms, what people you've been in the room with, that's all just super easy to get.
0: Yeah, yeah. that is the big difference with Clearview is that it pulls that information out. Yeah. There was um, another firm Vigilant Solutions, a license plate reader firm that had started to do that with facial recognition, um, which makes sense because you know your your plate is tie- your license plate is tied to your driver's license
2: which has a picture of you on it. So uh, if you heard Ah. me chuckling, that's because uh, I despise Vigilant Solutions. Uh, (laughs) I do not want you to underwrite this program. Uh, So uh, Vigilant Solutions uh, operates a network of license plate readers across the country that collects about a million license plate uh, numbers per day. Uh, Last I saw, it is used by the NYPD. They have an agreement with them. They uh, compile this nationwide network of... You know where we're driving constantly. And one of their customers is ICE. It's oh, yeah. Of immigration course it and is. Customer Enforcement. So they're using this private vendor to turn local law enforcement into a weapon against the undocumented communities that, at least here in New York, we pledge to protect. And that I think shows the danger of these ecosystems of data. You know, they're constantly sharing information from one source to another. And with Clearview, I think it's that on steroids Definitely. because they're doing that not just with our car's identity, they're doing it with our biometric identity.
1: Right. And most of the time when you have police run facial recognition databases, there's some reason why you might show up on that database, whether it's like that you'd been arrested before or some cop is prejudiced against you. I'm not saying it's good reason, but at least, you know, there's some precipitating action that lends you on this database with Clearview. It's just have you been on the Internet? Yay, you're in the database. Congrats, guys. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And I I think like here in New York, where we fought successfully to keep the NYPD from including driver license photos in uh, their facial recognition database, this essentially gives them an end run around that. They don't need your driver's license photo. They've got your profile photo.
0: That's one of the things that has made reporting on um, law enforcement surveillance so difficult over the years is that Determining whether or not an agency has access to has a certain sort of technology in their possession, it used to be a um, procurement issue, right? Okay, who do they have a contract with? Who do they who do they share information with? Who do they have access to? Right. There are different entities, different um, fusion centers. Um, informal agreements where that information can get passed around where private companies can also you know they set up a relationship with a private company that's basically a pass through right mm-hmm. to get that information
1: in.
0: 100% and oftentimes it's not the agencies doing these works it's private work it's private firms
1: other police departments yeah. like hey can you look this like, we don't have facial recognition you do let me precisely. email you this photo <laughs>
0: precisely and in, in places that are less Balkanized um, like unlike New York for example Los Angeles County, where there are God knows how many law enforcement agencies, not just LAPD. Uh, um, Then that actually no, that that situation really does. You see it play out on a day to day basis.
2: Well, we will definitely have to have another episode just dealing with the way that these information silos ha- are built up. But I think oh, yeah. that's all the time we've got for this one. So let's move on to our last uh, segment of the uh, show.
1: A fun one.
2: Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> if you aren't terrified yet, you will be entertained and terrified after this. Um, it's got to be both. So-, <laughs> uh, so we call this one. <laughs> For this week's episode, we're going to have Ali tell us about. Well,
0: there's this thing called the Adoru that is a concept um, William Gibson broached back in the late 90s with one of his novels. If you don't know who William Gibson is, he's probably the preeminent science fiction writer of the late 20th, early 21st century. Wrote Neuromancer, which predicted is this really wild kind of. Futuristic noir that coins the term, cyberspace. That just like
1: like everything that's in it exists today. Almost
0: we don't we don't quite have like uh, suborbital. Um, you know mansions for the off-world rich that have their own AI systems I think running Nolan in the yet is Just yet, on that, he's but... definitely working yeah, on that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know who's, know who's working on it? Bezos is, along with um, Neil Stevenson. That's what that Blue Origin company is all oh, about. It's no. not about new planets. It's about his house in the stars. To love Neil
1: Stevenson. Yeah.
0: Then he turned into a fascist. Oh. Fuck. Um, I <laughs> hope you hear that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Neil Stevenson, I still love you. Come to New York.
0: All right. Um, so, so anyway, Idoru. So the the idea is this: the Idoru. There was Gibson wrote an entire novel based around the Idoru, based around the concept of manufactured pop stars that don't exist in real life. They're just people that exist in simulations that uh, you know, simulations that people put on. Vert, they plug into like we do television, and instead of just watching it, you feel everything. You know, you feel like the the actual sensor of it, mm-hmm. um, the sensory impact of it and that is apparently starting to happen you have companies it's not just holograms of dead pop stars you have companies that are generating um their own cgi singers actors um you know just idols for kids to follow along and this is a huge thing in places like korea and japan and it's kind of you, you can see it kind of creeping into the day-to-day life here when you have um you know you have the holograms that literally are going on tour mm. for people to watch them.
2: And not just going on tour, but some of the highest grossing artists touring Ever. in yeah. the United States today. The holograms are? Yeah. You're kidding what? me. Yeah, Who? I I could be making just this Just Google up. it. Google uh, it real quick. All right. I, I, duck, I, duck, yeah. go it. Oh, uh,
1: no, that is the correct answer. You're totally right. We're gonna stop saying Google. It's Mark We're Hurst. Say.
0: That's Mark Hurst on FMU and WFMU's whole thing. Don't
1: use Google.
2: Never use it. <laughs> that is not our uh, agreement over how the uh, Mark sounds. Uh, Mark, is a great dude.
1: <laughs> Mark is great.
2: Uh, all right. So while I'm googling whether holograms are actually... Well,
1: so I can just say, so I think part of what I think is fascinating about this is the the way that AI is being used to generate fake people, just like broadly speaking, because yeah, pop star holograms are a big part of it and they're going to make a lot of money, but there's huge applications for what this could do for AI as well. Broadly speaking, uh, it could create training sets that aren't necessarily stolen from people, but it's also kind of nefarious too. You could create fake photos of teammates for your company if you want to show people that you're actually diverse. And just like anything else, it's like if something can be done, then, you know, the tech industry swoops in and says, let's do it. Um, there is a company that's trying to, it's selling like fake photos of fake people that are diverse. to so, like Photoshop them in with your team. Talk about cheating.
0: <laughs> and you're also building out like a, you're building out personalities. You're building out narratives that don't exist. It's just, war, it really warps the very nature of like what is reality.
1: Yeah. What you know. is reality and like what is ethical to do with someone's likeness? I mean, I think we all really didn't like, you know, the the super CGI elements of one of the most recent Star Wars movies. Oh, God. They were so creepy they were and it was the uncanny valley like crazy. But this and- like
0: this also takes the you know, we have all this fur now about deep fakes, right? Mm-hmm. It's plastering mm-hmm. somebody's real image onto that. And what what become what happens when you can't Differentiate any longer between who's a computer-generated person and who's an actual person. When so much of so much of the way people see w- the world now is through a screen. I mean, you walk through the street, you bump into people with their heads down on their phones because they don't look up anymore. That's mm-hmm. there's no stigma to that.
2: You're totally and, right. And I think for me, it, the one of the big fears is that it further consolidates power. You know, that you go from a creative class of musicians, artists, actors who you know are w- able to wield. A lot of influence over the content that's being made to this centralized, you know, almost reemergence of the studio system of, you know, the early Hollywood eras where suddenly these corporate monoliths are deciding not just what content they want, but what, you know, uh, what actors and musicians they want to create to perform it.
1: Right, like if you can make the perfect actor, why would you ever pay a human again? And
0: not just that. Why would you pay a human who's going to get into a labor dispute with you, who's going to accuse you of sexual harassment, who's going to have maybe a political opinion that doesn't sit well for the the people who are sponsoring them? Or any opinions at all. Or any opinions, yeah. I mean (laughs) why, why deal with somebody who's going to talk back when you can just have your perfect
2: computer model? And what happens when it goes from that to other professions? So not to bring everything back to lawyering, just for the most important profession ever. Uh Uh, (laughs) Sure. But what happens when you have an AI lawyer in the courtroom as a hologram? What happens when you have an AI journalist? Uh, Customer
0: support. We already do have them, unfortunately. Um, It's called the White House Press Corps.
1: Ah.
0: I do not like political coverage. Anyway, no, seriously, <laughs> the, you do have AI journalists that are writing sports reports, that are writing you know, match reports, that are mm-hmm. doing earthquake – that are writing up earthquake coverage. Mm-hmm. That are basi- there are programs that are trained to take raw information, spit them out. Um, this is something that the news wires do, um, the financial wires, Bloomberg and Reuters do this with um, like Fed reports, reports from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And I think the Fed recently banned both ser- all services from having computers in the room when they released their new uh, analytical reports so that you have to go back to the old pen and pad method because the transfer of information was happening so fast. Wow! But it's it certainly is happening in the more specialized lines of journalism which haven't been – which certainly won't get hollowed out in the same sort of um, – Devastating way in which, like, local news reporting, investigative reporting, the rest of the business has.
2: Oh, I mean, I'm terrified personally of when they re- uh, replace op ed uh, writers and uh, opinion columnists. I will
0: dance <laughs> on their grave.
1: Whoa, <laughs> you're sitting with two op ed writers oh. here. <laughs> the
0: opinion columnists?
1: Yeah, I kind of oh. have an opinion.
0: The op- there, yeah. There's like, this is a complete aside, but there is a widely held conviction it's a silent conviction among a lot of journalists a lot of hard news journalists that op-ed pages are when you attach them to a news operation like a hard news operation it is it becomes a cancer it is that like how eats you get away Red at the credibility Stevens? I don't want to talk about (laughs) rest seeds.
2: For the record, I will direct everyone to my uh, op-ed page separately. But, uh, no, um, what do you think we do about this to stop the dystopia from happening? Which dystopia? Well, just the replacement of every...
0: Magnets. Giant magnets. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. no. The the Adoru is... is There's a very interesting thing here. There's the desire to create and to create something that's interesting and dynamic and unpredictable and kind of beautiful in its own way. Yeah. That's the impulse to create like the artist, the 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 pop singer that is not a human being. You're, you're want, you know, it's a programmer's dream to be able to have a program that's this sophisticated and beautiful and elegant and intelligent. But then there's the impulse to use that for profit, for control, to manipulate mm-hmm. people, um, to change their view of the world. And that's really like, I don't, That's a very those two things. I can see them butting heads against each other.
2: But what I guess the thing that scares me is like when you look at the successful pushes back at corporate power and those wielding these sort of consolidated levers of control. A lot of the time, they depend on employees, Mm -hmm. you know, rising up and and leveraging their you know power to demand uh, improvement. Well but, if you don't have those employees because you 've already automated the job, what becomes the mechanism for actually pushing back
1: well it's consumer behavior right like there's there's consumer activism too. People refuse to eat Chick-fil-A food for so long until they stop donate, donating to anti-LGBTQ causes. Um, I think we all – you're going to hear this from me a lot if, if you know we continue with this – is that uh, I believe in collective action. I believe that we all have a responsibility to vote with our purchasing choices and to go work at companies where we actually couldn't look at ourselves in the mirror at the end of the day. It's easier said than done, but – we're all out there. We all care about this. We want to work together. It can't just be one person championing the way or, like, one employee standing up. It's got to be all of us making these small decisions together every day consciously.
2: So do we start a, uh, you know, only watch human uh, boycott? Yeah. How do you, but
0: how do you know? That's the thing. At a certain point, you're not going to know. That's where it gets really unnerving.
1: I don't know. Maybe I think a- for a while. We've got a while to go. That's true. I, I guess we're
0: we're not quite there. If
1: right. we demonstrate that it's not financially viable to watch holograms, then they'll stop making holograms.
0: Yeah, but then there's Ryan Gosling. And he really is. Let's be honest. He's a robot. He's a replicant. <laughs> he is a replicate. If you open him up, he bleeds machine.
1: I'm gonna, so we're I'm already there. Th-
0: I think we're already there.
1: Ryan Gosling, if you're out there, please come talk to me. I'm okay with that. Show me
2: your parts. (laughs) Uh, um, Ryan Gosling, I have no actual opinion about you. Um, (laughs) All right. So now that we're at the point of the show where we're just uh, speculating who is or is not a replicant, we might want to wrap things up. Uh, Any closing thoughts? He's a robot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I really hope Ryan Gosling is not a robot and he should come talk to me.
2: Well, on that profound note, I want to thank you for tuning in and hope you'll join us in future weeks as we delve into more of the horrifying technology that's you know, crushing all of our souls and replacing us with holograms.
1: On a high note.
2: Basically. On a high note. <laughs>
0: Always a high note. Hit that A flat.
2: So, Allie, where can people follow you on the terrible uh, tracking medium known as social media? Just one. Twitter, A. Winston. Liz?
1: I have Twitter as well. And Liz J. O'Sullivan. And I'm Fox F O X Connor. And C-A- he's on everything.
2: Yeah, Foxconn. I, I am on everything. Foxconn. <laughs> I Foxconn, no relation to the terrible Chinese manufacturer. Uh F-O-X-C-A-H-N. Uh on every possible social media platform. And then you can follow Liz and me both at stopspying.org, where we're uh constantly coming up with new ways to take on the surveillance state. Well, Woo. Thank you so much for joining us. Surveillance Surveillance in in
1: the city. city. F.A.Q. F.A.Q. NYC is a production of Racket Media and is supported by listeners like you. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. This week's episode was recorded at Don't Bury the Lead, which was Alex Brooklyn's journalism-themed installation at 321 Canal Street. If you missed it, too bad for you. Shout out to our guests, Albert Fox-Kahn and Liz O'Sullivan of Stop, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Program, and journalist Ali Winston. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and I, Adam Chimera, did additional production on this episode. Remember, if you have questions, check the FAQ.